Well, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 59. Psalm chapter 59. Well, it was just read for us. And in Psalm 59, you hear a prayer where David is crying out to God to deliver him from his enemies. Does that sound familiar? Here we are in the summer in the Psalms, uh, some of these sermons, and uh, some of the Psalms can start to sound a lot of the same, don't they? Here we are again. David's in trouble. There he goes again. David cries out for help. There he goes again. David praises God. And here we are again on a Sunday, looking at a psalm David wrote with those same themes. Um, so um, I just want to encourage us. I hope that we're not feeling bored with these themes. Uh, but maybe you are. So uh, today in this sermon, I'm planning to give us a guided meditation on one, uh, one truth from Psalm 59. Uh, this is not going to be an exhaustive kind of exegesis, looking at the different individual phrases and unpacking all the meaning contained in those phrases. Um, there's plenty more for us to come back to, Lord willing, at some other date um, in his timing. But for our purposes this morning, uh, really I'm going to just try to aim in on uh, helping us meditate and appreciate one big idea, one truth from Psalm 59 that I think is very important and I think is very important and enormously helpful for us as a church family um, in this present context, in our, in, our, in our present circumstance. Before we get into what that one truth is for us this morning, let me just give us a little bit of background that we believe lies behind uh, Psalm 59 here in our text. You'll notice the title, um, not, not a verse, but the title lines before verse 1, attribute this to David, and then it gives us a historical connection. When Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. That is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 19, and I'm going to just give us a very brief summary of those events to help us appreciate a little bit more of the circumstances that lie behind um, the words here that David pens. Um, David was not writing this just because he was kind of swept up in some sort of poetic moment. Um, this was really the expression of a heart that was in desperate need of God, and here's the circumstances why. Uh, David had achieved heroic success in Israel's armies. He had, of course, defeated Goliath, and he was a youth when he did that. And then David's subsequent battlefield victories had really given him such fame and, and renown that it had the woman of Israel singing, uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. This is kind of just a, a local tune that you'd hear kind of on the streets. People loved David. He was their kind of local hero. I mean, he was getting things done on the battlefield. Well, Saul became manically jealous about this, and his jealousy caused him with such outrage that twice, it's recorded, uh, he tried to kill David by throwing a spear at David while David was there serving in Saul's court. Each time, David narrowly escapes. And it was after the second murder attempt that David decides that he should probably stay away from Saul. And so he plans to flee that night. I think you would try to get away too. So he goes home. And he is married, David at the time is married to Saul's daughter, Michael. Michael, I don't know exactly how you're supposed to say that because Michael sounds like a guy. Anyways, M-I-C-H-A-L. He's married to Saul's daughter and uh, he gets home and King Saul had sent orders for his men to lie in wait around David's house 
And their orders were to watch for David and to kill him when they had a chance. So a group of mercenaries are going to show up at around David's house. David gets home and his wife, Michael, tells him, if you do not escape, 1 Samuel 19, verse 11, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. I mean, this is how dire things are. So Saul's daughter knows how serious dad is about this and she warns David, get out of here. But she didn't just warn him, she helps him escape. So they, um, they plan and they plot and they find a way for, uh, she lets David out through a window with a rope. It must have been in a place where the mercenaries couldn't see and David escapes, but she goes one step further. She plants a decoy in David's bed. She puts like some goat hair and puts things in his bed to make it look like there's somebody in his bed. And so this is a little bit puzzling to me. The soldiers that next, that morning, why they waited until the morning, I don't know. Mercenaries typically aren't polite. But that morning, they, they, they go and they, they, they go to uh, his home and they knock, they, they knock on the door and she answers and says, he is sick and ill in bed. And it must have been that they could somehow peer over and see from where they were because it says in the scriptures that they could see what it, what it looked like to be uh, David there. And so they leave and report back to Saul. Uh, we didn't get him, He's, but it's okay. He's sick in bed. Uh, next time, Saul is not pleased. And he says, go back and bring him to me, even if you have to bring him in his sick bed, because I want to kill this guy. So the soldiers go back. They demand uh, to get David. They realize that it's a ruse. David's long gone. And um, he is, uh, continues on the run. Those are the events behind David in this psalm. Quite um, kind of the stuff of movies, right? It's like um, uh, this is dramatic, right? Mercenaries plotting, trying to kill, getting let out, all this going on which I think will help us understand why David starts right out of the gates with Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. He doesn't waste any opening preamble in his prayer. It's just this, this plea, this immediate expression of help. Well, then what does Psalm 59 have to do with us today? Because I doubt that any of you are here this morning having just evaded mercenaries that were around your house last night. And if that is true of you, please talk to one of the elders because we want to help you. So we might look at a psalm like this and say, so what are we supposed to do with this? Well, there's one truth I want us to consider today that I think will help us as a church family in our present time. It is simply this. Your personal relationship with God is essential for faith in troubled times. Your personal relationship with God is essential for faith in troubled times. And then to take that and translate it into a New Testament church context, our relationship with God, which is basically a conglomeration of Right? As a church family, we're individuals here, putting us all together, and then we're a church family. Our relationship with God is essential for our faith as a church family in troubled times. Now, I'm going to take the rest of the sermon and prove this statement to you and unpack it and then hopefully apply it. And I hope that our hearts will be encouraged to lean into God uh, here this next week. Uh, look at verses 1 and 2, right? It looks quite simple. A simple expression of deliverance from his enemies. He asks God for protection, deliverance from those who would do him harm or evil. Pretty standard psalm-like stuff. But notice in verse 1, the term my. And then look down in verse 9. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. And then look again at verse 10. I notice... The repeated word, my. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Now look again at verse 17. And here are these terms 
of possession again. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. What's going on here? Well, to answer that question, let's consider how we talk about people and our relationship with them. I came across this little anecdotal kind of example in study for something else uh, this past week, and I thought it fit well here. But, for example, in a book or a movie, some story where you have two characters in conflict with one another, uh, whatever the conflict, just imagine it's like a sword fight or something, okay? If there was a battle and one character said to the other, you're mine now, none of us would be thinking, oh, he loves him. He's going to care for him and protect him and sacrifice his life for him. No, we would understand that as a, as a statement of dramatic, like overpowering and conquering. In that context, we would understand it as a threat, as deadly. But why do we ever dare, then, in different contexts, to talk about somebody as my? How dare we ever do that, right? I mean, how dare we ever talk about a human being as if we own them? But we, we do this regularly, right? We just become so accustomed to it, we don't realize it. But we're only really permitted to do that when our relationship with that person is so close and so personal and so intimate as a result of deep, voluntary self-giving in the relationship that we can say, this is my wife, or this is my husband, or this is my son or my daughter. But other contexts, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't claim someone to be our property. I know I'm being a little crude there. But when the relationship is so close, so intimate, so deep and full of self-giving love, then we understand that it's okay to use that term and we actually welcome it. We all love to belong to someone, right? In that sense of close love and affection. This is the notion of that deep, voluntary, self-giving love that we hear in the phrase of Song of Solomon. I know we don't hear quotes from this book often, right? Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 16, where, the, where it said this, My beloved is mine and I am his. And it's this strong statement of close, deep, romantic affection. This is an evidence of how David perceives God while he's in times of trouble. And it tells us something about his relationship with God as he cries out to God in times of trouble. What I'd like for us to consider this morning is we will not cry out to God this way. We will not have confidence in God like that if we do not know him in that way. If our hearts are cold and distant or kind of we've been neglecting relationship with the Lord, when times of trouble come, we're not going to know how to respond. Our world's burning down around us and we're going to burn down with it. But David here as he sees trouble in his life, he cries out to God and it's full of these, these personal pronouns of affection, of love, of adoration that gives him confidence in his times of trouble. How else do we see this relationship in Psalm 59? Well, another evidence of that close relationship is found in the profusion of the different names that David uses when he talks to God, when he, when he is writing this prayer, when he's, when he's uttering this prayer. David calls God in verse 5, just look at the string in verse 5 alone. O Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel. Now again, we kind of get lost in just, well, this just kind of sounds like Bible ease. This is kind of how Bible people talk about God. They just kind of string together all these names. But it's not just done for pure literary effect. There is a meaning in the name of God. And that's very clear in the Scriptures. When God reveals himself to Moses... He reveals himself with a very specific, unique, personal name. And that's what the term capital L, capital O, R, and D. This term of Yahweh, of Jehovah. 
which really is that great personal name of God revealed to Moses, which kind of encompassed this God-like term of I am, right? I am who I am. That's who God is. That's how he self-defines. That's, what, that's the name he has for himself personally. I am who I am. Kind of has infinity, past, present, and future all wrapped up in the same term. The next term, the God of hosts, is Elohim Sabaoth. It refers to God as commander of both the armies of Israel and to the heavenly hosts that would stand behind God's people and give them victory in battle. The God of Israel, Elohai Israel, is refers to the God who has entered into covenant relationship with his people. And we might, in our modern context, read that and say, well, I mean, it doesn't say he's God of America, so it doesn't really matter. Friends, we have so much more in Jesus Christ and the covenant he's made with us. It's so much better than the, than the covenant that God made with Israel. God has given us something so much more in us being the people of Christ. And so what's happening in Psalm 59 is we get a glimpse into the rich depth and close affection that David had in his relationship with God. Remember, David was a shepherd boy who would be singing and praising God there as he was just doing the simple task, kind of the meaning, um, the, uh, the many would call the meaningless task of just caring for animals out in the field. He was the forgotten child, right? When, when the sons were being, being led in front of Samuel, when the next king was going to be chosen, and he was the forgotten son out in the field. And yet we find here David has a rich personal relationship with God that sustains his faith through times of trouble. It means this, David was not praying to some impersonal cosmic force. Do you? He knew that he belonged to God. Do you? He knew he was loved by God with a covenantal love, even while he was in the midst of troubling times. Do you? For him, when he talked to God, this was my God. Now, our world uses those terms kind of in a casual, cliche kind of dramatic way where they will say, oh my God, in front of some sort of sentences for dramatic effect. David used it in a significantly different way, a term of close personal affection which fueled and filled his heart with faith-filled obedience. So you might say, well, it doesn't comfort me though because the my God that David was writing to and calling out to was letting David suffer hardship, calamity, that doesn't give me confidence. Why would I pray to a God that allows hardship into our lives? Well, I don't really have... We could get into a biblical argument on that, but let me just give you kind of a pragmatic argument here to begin with. But think about it. We as limited human beings parent our children, and as we parent our children, we do not remove every obstacle and hardship from their life. We don't. We shouldn't. We know that. Our children don't understand what and why, we might let them go through hardship and trouble. But as parents, we understand that there are lessons and character that will be forged in no other way. Therefore, if we as human parents have reasons to allow hardship in our children's lives, and I know that these analogies can, this can break down quickly, but if we and as human parents might have reasons that our children really don't understand, isn't it possible then that an all-wise eternal God might have reasons we can't even begin to understand in his whole world order of eternity, and why we, he might allow suffering in our lives. And here's, the, here's where it's even better, okay? God is all wise and knowing and all loving. We are not as human parents. We can sometimes make mistakes as human parents. God never does. God never does. David is fully assured of God's love, of God's mercy, of God's covenant, of God's dependability, of his faithfulness, that he is 
right? When he talks about God being a fortress. Why? It's because David was assured he had experienced God in meaningful, direct ways. And so, in other words, if you want confidence and strength to endure troubling times in faith like David, well, then you must develop and pursue a deep and rich personal relationship with God. So I wonder how we're doing. How are we doing in our relationship with God? This is a healthy question for us to ask ourselves and each other regularly. It's kind of like all the best things in life, right? Exercise, and right eating and all that. It's kind of important to have somebody ask us from time to time, how are you doing on exercising? Or maybe your doctor, how are you doing on eating? And we kind of roll our eyes and go, yeah, you're right. Well, here's your pastor, one of your pastors, asking us as a church family, how are you doing in your personal relationship with God? Is God some personal distance, distant force out there that you hope might or might not answer your prayers? Or is God someone you know and love and adore and worship? You see, that kind of relationship doesn't happen by accident. It takes time. It takes simple steps of obedience chained together over a long period of time for that to result in a rich and meaningful relationship. And we understand this in relationships with other people. None of us would expect to have a deep, rich, meaningful relationship with someone that we spend time with once or twice a year, maybe every three or four months, five, ten minutes here and there. Friends, this church family is going through a time of hardship. We are needing to endure in patient faith as we wait upon God and trust in Him to provide us our next lead pastor. Church family, I want to encourage us to lean into God in these times. Invest time in your relationship with God. Read His Word. Pray and meditate on who He is and His glories. Enjoy God this week. Be reminded of how great and mighty He truly is as you see Him revealed in the Scriptures. Spend time in praising Him for what you see and enjoying Him in prayer and trusting Him with the cares and anxieties upon your heart knowing He cares for you. God has not forsaken us. God is with us always, even to the end of the ages. God has promised in Matthew 16 that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God will fulfill all His purpose for us. Friends, we will doubt that if we do not know God well. So leaning into our relationship with God is very important. And one reason is that we will not think accurately about God if we are not regularly reading and being reminded of God-sized truths, right? We are so leaky. Our hearts and our heads are so leaky, aren't they? We'll hear God-sized truths on a Sunday or from a Christian friend sometime during the week and hours, a day later, we'll forget. Trouble will crash into our lives and it's like God doesn't exist in that area. So friends, neglecting a relationship with God will cause us to start using a magnifying glass on our troubles instead of using a telescope on our God. When we do that, our troubles, our frustrations, our disappointments with circumstances, even with one another, start to rule the day and rule our hearts. We start to pull away from God and one another, and this destroys our Christian unity. And if we neglect our relationship with God like that, we're going to start fighting and arguing because our troubles are big to us instead of God being big to us. And if that happens, it's going to hinder our shared mission and, our, and sabotage our ability to display God's glory. And that's our mission. Or in other words, we won't be able to make Jesus not ignorable to others if we are ignoring Jesus ourselves. Clearly, Psalm 59 was written from a man who had not ignored God, but had patterns 
and rhythms of rich communion with the Lord. David's personal relationship carried with God carried him through these times of trouble. Now let me prove it to you a little bit more. Look at verses 6 and 7. There's twice in this psalm, there is a kind of a repeated chorus. And we see it the first time in verse 6 and 7. Each evening, they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with sores in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. So the evil here are described as being people who pursue evil. They're emboldened in their evil because they think, who's going to hear us? We're getting away with this. But now glance down in verse 14 and 15. Here he is repeating this chorus again. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. This repetition shows us that David's troubles keep coming back. They're relentless. They keep showing up loud and threatening and ruthless like a pack of dogs. Have you ever laid awake at night with some hardship or trouble nagging at you and won't let you go to sleep? And it's not the first night that's happened? Do your troubles keep reappearing? Just like David, are your troubles like a pack of dogs? You can use that analogy. And here they are, back again. Maybe it's a coworker or a family member or some other person that just keeps causing trouble in a relationship or... Maybe it's a circumstance at work or an illness or pain or some physical ailment that just keeps returning and causing trouble again. Or maybe you feel trouble and angst in your soul for this church family as we wait on God to provide our next lead pastor. Whatever it is. We need to remember my God, like David describes him, more than we rehearse our troubles. Now, we need to remember and be so fully convinced about who God is that our troubles start to take a different size and shape in comparison. Our troubles are going to come back regularly. They're always there. They're relentless, just like David writes here in Psalm 59. But friends, our God is unchanging and he is always with us. And you can count on him. It doesn't make our troubles go away, right? Faith in God doesn't make our troubles just kind of poof. It's, God, it's not like a magic spell. But what it does do is give us strength to face those troubles with faith and confidence in God. And when we do that, God is glorified. Notice the contrast in the second half of these choruses. So you have verse 6 and 7 and then 14 and 15. Well, those choruses have a second half. So David admits, my troubles are back. They're just like a pack of howling dogs prowling around, ready to do me harm. But now look at verse 8. Look how vastly different this is than what he talks about when he's his troubles. But you, O Lord, O Jehovah... I am who I am. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. David is comforted and encouraged to remember God laughs at the silliness of evildoers thinking they are getting away with their evil. God laughs at the absurdity of evildoers who think they're somehow large and in charge as if God's rule and reign doesn't reach them. This reminds us of Psalm chapter 2. I'll read the first four verses of Psalm 2. Same idea here from Psalm 59. Why do the heat nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What's God's response? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And here David writing about his troubles, is reminding his heart that he worships God who laughs at evildoers in the absurdity of what they think they're getting away with. They are not. 
God's rule and reign is decisive and sovereign and will win the day ultimately. David's troubles are still around him. But this mighty, supreme, sovereign, and eternal God fills David's mind, his vision, like we just sang, right? Be thou my vision. It fills his, his, the eyes of his mind and David with strength endures through troubling times. Friends, God's glorious reign will outlast our trouble. It will. Even if our trouble were a lifetime long, for some of us it is, God's glorious reign will outlast that. And because we are in Christ, we'll enjoy that reign. We'll enjoy it. David finds security in that reality. And this is one way he knows that God is his fortress. This idea of fortress, you know, we don't have fortresses, you know, around town here, which is a good thing. I'm glad. I'm glad we don't need fortresses kind of stationed around town for us to run into in case the enemies attack. But that would have been common in David's day. And a fortress would have been brought a particular word picture in mind. It wasn't just a, a defensive position, but it was a high, often a high defensive position. Raised up, a citadel raised up high that had the superiority of having the high ground, which is what gave it its fortress-like um, characteristics. And David understands God to be like that for him. Why? Because God is the God who laughs in derision at evildoers. How is it that God is his fortress? Look at verse 10. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. Again, this is, this is right after he talks about the howling dogs, his troubles are back, right? My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look and triumph on my enemies. Friends, that's a marvelous verse. Do you see that? My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. It's not that David has to go on the hunt for God's love. No, David knows that my God will meet him in steadfast love. God is coming to David. God takes the initiative. God is the one coming to meet David in his time of need. And friend, the same is true for us today. As I'm exhorting us as a church family to kind of refresh our, our resolve, our, our desire, our faith-filled obedience to pursue God in relationship, I want us to understand that God is not like playing hard to get. He's not. He will come and meet you with steadfast love. How does God meet us? We could spend an entire sermon series on that topic alone. Here's just a sample. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's God's love coming to meet you. I mean, really, we, there's no one else we know like that. No one. John 10. Here's, here's the God who meets us. I give them eternal life. This is Jesus speaking, which, by the way, meant he knew he was giving himself. It wasn't like he had a Pez dispenser of eternal life and he was just kind of popping it out at people. He was giving his life for that eternal life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is God's love coming to meet you. Or Luke 12. Again, fear not, little flock. Aren't those great words for us as a church family to hear? Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is God's steadfast love coming to meet you. Or Matthew 28, 20, when Jesus says, Behold, I mean, listen up. I am with you always to the end of the age. 
This is God's steadfast love coming to meet you. Friends, as I encourage us to lean into God, this is the God I'm encouraging us to lean into. There is none other like this. None. You're discouraged. Your hearts are failing in faith. You're doubting your circumstances. You have trouble. Friends, we have a God like this. And He is a fortress for us in times of trouble. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes one of the most spectacular expressions of praise in Romans about God's love in Romans 8. We've, we've read this passage numerous times in sermons and in between songs and in, at uh, benedictions. Why? Because it's just so spectacular. And after Paul writes about hardships, and like, like grisly hardships, not like bad mortgage rates, and, and I know those are hardships too, but he's writing about stuff like tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. He says this, but no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. This just defies human logic. We are more than conquerors, how, how Paul? Through him who, here's the key, loved us. Psalm 59, God's steadfast love comes to meet him. Paul's assured that nothing, nothing can separate him from the love of God. And by the way, the steadfast love of God that meets us is the love of Jesus. David knew that in theory in the way he did in, in his own limited sense here in this Old Testament context, but we in our New Testament context know what the steadfast love of God looks like in its fullest expression in Jesus Christ, and that is the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not a message of religion. It is, it is one of relationship and love. Christianity is an invitation to know the love of God like that. We don't deserve God's love. We don't deserve Jesus to be give his life and die our death and then be raised again so he can give us that eternal life. We don't deserve that. We know that. Our, our consciences know that we don't deserve this kind of love, which is why Paul wrote in Romans 5, but God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. This is why, even more so than David, we can be assured that God's steadfast love comes to meet us in Christ. We know that if we're being honest, that sinful people like us can never impress a holy God and earn his love. Yet we all desperately, in our souls, long for that kind of love. We, we yearn for it. But the only place that we will find a love like that is in Psalm 59, the my God that David writes about. Do you know God's saving love like that? Are you a Christian? I'm not asking if you're acting like a Christian. I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm asking, have you truly encountered that kind of love in Christ? Have you encountered the transforming, liberating love like that? Well, here's the good news. It gets even better. You can know and experience God's love right now. God's offer of forgiveness is real. And he invites every sinner to, to confess him as Lord and embrace him to turn away from our worship of false gods like money or success or power or sex or morality or whatever it is that we are worshiping at to try to find completion in life and acceptance and turn to God and find it in him alone. That's really the message of the gospel of Christianity. And back to Psalm 59, we'll finish up by looking at the second contrast in David's repeated chorus. Look at verse 14 and 15. Again, he's just written about, again, these dogs are back, they're howling, they're prowling about. David's troubles just won't go away, right? They keep coming back. You know the feeling, right? <laughs> What's David's response? Look at verse 16 and 17. But I will sing of your strength. I'll sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. 
For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. All my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. What does your heart sing about? Have you ever been stuck singing about your troubles? Kind of a dirge. You know, it's not really a song when we sing about our troubles, right? You ever gotten stuck there? I have. Maybe you're stuck there now. Church family, Psalm 59 reminds us that as your elders are working and as we wait in patient faith for God to provide our next lead pastor, we can sing of God's strength. We can sing of God's steadfast love to us. We can be assured that God is our fortress. He is a refuge for us in our day of distress. In your own circumstance, in your own life, the calamity or the trouble that just keeps showing up and it seems relentless. Friends, you have troubles in life, yes. You have obstacles in life, yes. But we also have a God who is my strength. Do you know that God? Can you see his steadfast love or the troubles all you can see? Look around this room. There's evidences of God's steadfast love all around you. God's saving sinners and transforming them, just like he's transforming you. You're like, yeah, but you don't know how irritating he is or how how frustrating she is. Well, but friends, we all do share in this. We've been loved by God who is transforming us. And he's getting us ready for this day of days when we will see him face to face. You see God's steadfast love? Open your Bibles this this week. Open your Bibles and read. But... But don't treat this like chicken soup for the soul. Don't treat God's word as some little, little pick-me-up to get you through the day with some pithy statement of you know, wisdom, some little Yoda-like statement. God is showing you his glory. His glory. Look for that glorious God. God is showing you a steadfast love that defies human description. I mean... The scripture describes it, but there are, there are aspects to it that are just, that's why the, why the apostle could say, the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is why the apostle could write that the gospel is something that these, these eternal angelic beings are leaning into and trying to learn more about because they want to know more. They're spellbound by the gospel and we've experienced it. Open your Bible this week and look for that God. Pray. Pray what the psalmist did. Open my eyes to see wondrous things from your word. I know our, our heads are hard, our hearts are hard, are cold, but God's word can break the rock of our hearts and can warm us and fill us with faith-filled obedience to even in the midst of trouble, even when we're chased by quote-unquote mercenaries, we can still say, God, you are my fortress. God, my soul will sing of your strength. Your steadfast love comes to meet me even while he's on the run. How does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen overnight, so I want, to, I want us to be realistic. Uh, maybe, maybe God would be pleased to give you a revival kind of moment tomorrow as you read your Bible. That happened. Praise God for that. That would be wonderful. But friends, I want us to be realistic that God is not just some little party trick to be discovered. He's God. And there is something about humbling ourselves under his mighty hand and worshiping him settling out the distractions, giving him time and attention. 
And friends, we will see the same God David has seen. And we will have our hearts assured the same way David had his hearts assured. Friends, look at Christ. You want to see a steadfast love, see his fortress, see how the confidence that is offered to us as the people of God look to Christ. And church family, I'm confident that we, like David before us, even though we have troubles in our life, and we do, we still have enough reasons to sing praise to God. God is our fortress, and in his steadfast love, he will come and meet us.